Dr. Nicoleta Dimitriou completed her PhD in ethnomusicology from University of London. She has held fellowships at Princeton and Oxford universities. It's been a Fulbright scholar, uh, held positions at University of Cyprus, and has written extensively on Cypriot traditional music, its history and historiography. She edited, co-edited a number of publications on music in Cyprus, including the book Music in Cyprus, and has most recently published her book, The Cypriot Fiddler, which will be a significant topic of conversation today. Nicoleta, welcome to the History of Cyprus podcast. Hello, Andrea, and many thanks for the invitation. Oh, you're very welcome. So just generally speaking, uh, I want to start off by asking what defines traditional Cypriot music, um, you know, and, and what I mean by that are like, what are what are some of the images that are conjured when we think of, of Cypriot musicians? So um, I think that the image that perhaps most people um, associate with Cypriot music is that of fiddlers. So someone playing the violin and someone playing the lauto. Other people sometimes think of the pifikavli or other traditional instruments or perhaps particular songs or village festivals and, and fairs. And I think that perhaps in more recent years, uh, there's also the image of uh, TV shows that highlight uh, traditional music. And they also seem to come up in, in, in people's minds or in conversations when one talks about uh, traditional music in Cyprus. Are there any instruments that are associated with uh, certain communities? For example, I mean, as, as someone who would uh, identify with the Greek Cypriot community, for example. I'm I'm very much familiar with with uh, the, the lauto and the the violin, but are there other communities that would use some different instruments? Yes. So as you said, the um, the two instruments that are most commonly associated with the Greek Cypriot community are indeed the violin and the lauto. There are a couple of other instruments that sometimes show up as well. So occasionally you'd have the tambucha, which is a frame drum, and the bifkavli, so um, um, a reed flute. In the Turkish separate community, you also have the violin and the lauto, but sometimes instead of the lauto, you get the oud, uti. Um, in Greek, it's called uti, ut in, in, in English and, and Turkish and Arabic. And uh, there's also the zurna and daul, zurnaske dauli in Greek. These two instruments are associated with the Turkish Cypriot community in Cyprus and perhaps to a lesser extent with the Maronite community in Cyprus. And these coexist with the violin and the lauto or the violin and the, and the oud. And are, are, are there typical themes or topics that are usually sung uh, when, uh, when these performances are, are, are performed? And, and in a similar vein, like where would we typically see some of these instruments being, being used? Uh, well, I mean, nowadays it's true that traditional music is used, let's say, organically in the community, perhaps less and less. Uh, you still get to see traditional instruments at weddings, particularly before a wedding, during the the, the changing, as we say, toalama, of the bride and groom. Occasionally, also during the the entertainment that follows a wedding or a celebration, and of course, village festivals and fairs. And nowadays, yes, the radio and the TV. These are also venues where uh, traditional music is played and performed. Now, as to themes, uh, well. I'm going to turn my attention to the music of the Greek Cypriot community now, because of course, if we're talking about songs, songs are necessarily connected to language. 
So um, I'll focus on that for a moment. But the the music of the Greek Cypriot community is uh, very well, very heavily relies on these um, improvised couplets, distiha. We also call them chatista. We can come to that term later and, and whether you know it, it just means distiha or not. But since most of these distiha are improvised, or some of them, a good number of them are improvised. So the themes can be infinite. I mean, it really depends on what the singer or poet wants to talk about, wants to express at any given moment. But very often we find that in, in separate traditional music, the theme that, that, that is most common is the theme of love. Uh, people sing about love in, in all kinds of ways. I mean, it can be, you know, about um, happy love, let's say, but it can also be about, about unrequited love, desperate love. And then, of course, there are also other types of songs where you have different themes. So, for instance, if we are looking at narrative songs, then since there is a narrative, there's a story there. Sometimes the story connects to, for instance, a, a historical theme or, um, or a religious theme, or, or it can be something something completely different. Or it can also be about love again. So, I mean, the, 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 there are endless themes, I would say, as many as the poets who sing them. But again, if I had to... If I had to say, you know, what is the the theme that comes up most frequently in separate traditional singing? I would say it's it's love in all kinds and forms. I just want to circle back really quick because um, you mentioned the. I, I wasn't intending on talking about uh, chatista. You, you mentioned the Greek word there. Can you tell me what what was that word again, and what what does that mean, or you think is the origin of the meaning of chatista? Okay, so I use the word distiho or distic. So a two-line verse, yeah, a two-line verse. So diostihi, two verses, essentially, distiho. So there are different types of distics or distiha used in, in Cypriot traditional music. Um, some of them talk about love, and these are usually called erotika. Others can talk about other things. Uh, for instance, they can be, uh, they, they can comment on, I don't know, the current affairs or um, about what's happening around the, the poet improvising at the moment. And these are sometimes called ugonomika or efkeriaka. So that have to do with, you know, the, the um, it's like a saying, let's say, or something that has come up because of something that the poet has seen or listened to at a given moment. And then there's also chatista. Now, the word chatista is is now frequently used or more often than not is used to describe to describe sorry any kind of rhyming couplet uh whether it talks mm -hmm. about love or about um current affairs or whether it's um it's what we call the, an antagonistic couplet um mm -hmm. whereby one poet tries to to essentially um win an argument let's say over another poet the oppo the, the, his opponent, but in the past the word chatista referred specifically to uh, improvised couplets uh, of again of an antagonistic content, where one poet would try to argue in a poetic manner with the other. So there was this element of of fighting. Sometimes it's also called poetic fighting or dueling. Poetic dueling is sometimes the, the translation used in English is poetic dueling. 
Um, so, but nowadays, as I said, the word chatista is frequently used to describe any kind of rhyming couplet, irrespective of content. So you, you wrote that traditional music passed from ritual to theater, from rituals being enacted to being performed. And as someone who is of Cypriot descent, you know, living in the diaspora, I sort of identified with that statement in the sense that I was I, I was raised in a lot of the communities, as I'm sure a lot of listeners who are living in Australia or in the UK or the States or in Canada can identify with. And this idea of a performance is something that kind of resonated with me because I'm, I'm not really encountering this traditional music in, you know, even as somewhat of Cypriot descent and, you know, my day to day. And if anything, rarely would I even see it at a wedding being performed here in North America. So is that, am I identifying correctly with what you meant that it's moved from uh, a ritual to, to theater and that a lot of this traditional music and dance is performed really just to identify with a past that kind of doesn't really exist as much anymore? Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a great question, actually. So, uh, first of all, the, this term from ritual to theatre is not mine. Um, it's actually the title of a book by an anthropologist, uh, Victor Turner. Um, the book was published in the in the 80s, I think. So, yeah, there's this idea that um, sometimes traditions, let, let, let's put it a little bit more generally, um, are first a part of a society in an organic way, but then they move on from that and they become something else, something that one can, let's say, watch on TV or uh, on stage as a staged performance. So to make it more concrete in relation to Cyprus, what I meant when I wrote that was that before the mid-20th century, traditional music was a means through which a number of rituals were enacted. For instance, when there was a wedding, music was used not simply as entertainment, but also as an organic part that had to that, that that needed to be there in order for the rituals to be enacted. So, for instance, when let's say the um, when when the bride and groom would change into their wedding clothes, music had to be there, and certain uh, verses had to be sung, and certain things had to happen in a in a particular order for for the ritual, for the wedding ritual to be enacted. And then when the bride and groom would walk to church, then certain types of music had to be played and, and so on and so forth. The, these traditional ways of, of making music, or if you like this meaning of music in society, let's put it like this, changed dramatically in Cyprus after independence in 1960, but especially after 1974, because what happened in 1974, I mean, aside from anything else, was that there was a very violent collapse of old uh, village structures, if, if I can put it like this. So these local societies that had their own codes of contact, of conduct, sorry, their own, their own mores, um, their own rules, their own, own ways of being, suddenly ceased to exist uh, and music of course was a part of that was part of those societies so once those societies ceased to exist in the way they had music music making um in a way died with them i mean it it 
carried on, but it had to assume a different role because the society in which it existed and in which it had this very specific role was not there anymore. So if you didn't have the village, the village community as before, if you didn't have weddings as before, if you didn't have those social structures that were there to support those rituals anymore, then music, yes, it, it carried on, it still existed, but it didn't exist in the same way as before because, yeah, the, the society that supported it was no longer there. So what we, we could see, what we saw after 1974 was that um, music began to be performed in a, not always, again, I'm, I'm generalizing here just to, just to give an answer to your question, sometimes began being performed in a sort of cultural void in the sense that even though there was no wedding, there was no ritual, there was no uh, village fair and so on, these same songs carried on being performed, but, but at different settings and for different reasons. And so gradually what happened was that, again, since you move from the ritual and from the occasion that enables this type of music or ritual to exist, you, in a way, have to give music a different, a different meaning because the setting is different, the people who played are different, the audience is different, and the understanding of the music is different. And, of course, since society changed with it, the role of music also changed. And so, again, from being an organic part of society, it did become a show in many respects. I find that really, really interesting, really fascinating, especially as someone who is a part of that, you know, or has been a part of that. There's something else that you actually mentioned, too, that I think is, is related to what you just said. And I'm going to read a quote again from you. You say, dances become a sort of cultural voice, creating a stagnation in the music itself. It became something to be admired and preserved, but not to be meddled with, an emphasis placed on preservation, and end quote. So something that I'm not familiar with at all, you're, you're hinting at this struggle or conflict between traditionalists and, and modernists, you know, one to preserve and disseminate the music, as you know, you could hear in, in the diaspora, and then others are trying to modernize. Can you explain to me what this and to listeners, because I think most of us are not going to be familiar with that there is this, indeed, this struggle between the modernists and traditionalists in, in Cypriot music. What is that? Yes, just for a second to go back to that quote, um, that's actually from Music in Cyprus, just, just to say that um, what I meant there, perhaps there was a type, it was a cultural void rather than a cultural voice, because I think that uh, that makes more sense. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Yeah, call, call avoid. Yeah. Um, so, well, the struggle that I was talking about there, to an extent, it still exists, but I think it was more prominent about 20 years ago when I when I started doing my field work in, in Cyprus with traditional musicians. So at the time, um, there was this this struggle between those musicians who said. Uh, we used to say, and we're very sort of adamant about it, that you know what we are trying to do is to preserve what was given to us. Uh, just play music the way it was played uh, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. That we're not trying to change anything. We're simply trying to preserve what was given to us: the same instruments, the same melodies, and so on. And 
there were other people who, of course, who used to say that, no, you know, it, it's not possible for us to be playing the same things exactly in the way that they were given to us uh, by, by our forefathers. So what we're trying to do is that we're trying to modernize things a little bit. So uh, we're trying to add, for instance, new instruments and new instrumentations and new, a new beat um, so that music can be more um, pleasant uh, to today's listeners. To like the modern and, ear or, or yeah, what to have modern you. ear, exactly. And to younger listeners as well and so on. But of course, you know, what I found at the time was that to a very large extent, perhaps not wholly, but to a very large extent, it was a sort of fictitious argument because, of course, even if you're trying to preserve music the way it was, you cannot because, you know, the, the instruments are different. The people playing the instruments are different. Uh, the, the, our aesthetic approach to music changes as we change and because of course we, we listen to different things and so we approach things differently by definition but i suppose it, it, it was an interesting debate at the time and it did mean that of course there were slightly different performance styles and slightly different approaches when it came to to recording traditional music at the time but i, I suppose the interesting thing about that conversation and that argument was that on both sides, people were trying to find a way to make music relevant to, to, to people today and to also keep playing it and keep singing it and to somehow keep it alive. Uh, so this, is, this was the bit that I sort of held on to, if you liked, from that um, from that argument. And then, of course, yes, as I said, there were musical differences. There were things that one could talk about regarding instrumentation, for instance, or the, the changes in the rhythm and, and so on. But I think the essential thing was, was, well, the gist of the debate was that there was this effort to try and find a way to keep playing this music so that people today would still, um, will keep listening to it. So is, is this the, the impact of urbanization and modernization on, on traditional music? I mean, I, I recall you mentioned something along those lines that, that there was an impact of, of modernization on traditional music. And this is what created the, the, that kind of struggle, for, for lack of a better word? Yes, there was urbanization, there was modernization, but I think that in, in the case of Cyprus, what changed music and music making most dramatically was 1974, once again, because, um, you know, this was a huge rift between anything that was quote unquote old and anything that was quote unquote new. And then you also had this, this huge um, movement of, of population um, within a few months. Um, you know, a third, we sometimes forget about this, but, you know, a third of the country's population had to move in the space of, of three months. And then you had these new communities of people living together who had never been together before. So, you know, for instance, you had people from, I don't know, let's say, Carpasia, uh, living with people from areas around Nicosia or villages around Kairinha. And they all somehow had to come together in these new communities. And of course, each of these people, these communities of people had their own, uh, their own customs, their own ways of being, their own ways of, of talking, their own ways of playing music, their own ways of, of cooking at the time. And I, I remember this, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm going back to this, 
if you like, not academically or um, only as a result of research or whatever, but because I, I myself grew up in a, in a prosfigikosikismos, so in a, on a sort of refugee housing estate. So this was the reality in Cyprus right after the war. And when I was growing up, I remember that, you know, our neighbors who had come from a village in Bendadachtilos spoke very differently from my parents who had come from Famagusta. And we spoke very differently from our next door neighbor who had come from another village in Mesauria. And we cooked differently. And, you know, we approached everyday things in a slightly different way. And nowadays, these differences are no longer there. But at the time, they were still present. So if we, if we transpose a situation um, into music, what happened was, of course, music making, uh, singing, playing music, understanding music, relating to music was also slightly different in all of those communities before 1974, because you still had these local customs, right? These local ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. But then once people came together in their refugee communities, they had to somehow coexist. And, and what happened slowly, uh, but very sort of surely, was that new versions of everything began to, to emerge, that these versions were not necessarily, let's say, the, the Carpas version or the Famagusta version or the Mesauria version, but this was a new version that, in a way, tried to, tried to make space for a bit of everything. Uh, so what happened in the case of music was that traditional music, to an extent, uh, the traditional music that was played, especially in refugee communities and in the so-called laurafikiomuli, these folklore clubs that that sprung up in the in the eighties, was a new type of Cypriot music, uh, in the sense that it emerged after the war and as a result of war, and it it had to necessarily make space for um, regional differences and uh, allow different things to coexist so that everyone could express themselves, if you like. And this takes us back to your previous question about, um, you know, the cultural void. Again, music that was played in this folklore clubs was, of course, you know, the, the settings were very different from the settings of the, the village, quote unquote, the village that people had left behind. So I'd like to re revisit the Fjolari. And this project for you originated with the work that you were doing at the Oxford Center for Life Writing. And then it, over, over the many years, this research led you to uh, eventually publishing the, the book in Greek, The Cypriot Fiddler. Uh, so my uh, question for you is, um, who were the Cypriot fiddlers? And uh, were they a professional class? What was their job exactly? Was it principally dominated by men? Uh, what can you tell us about the Cypriot fiddler? So yes, the um... The Cypriot fiddlers or Fjolarias were men of limited financial means who usually had a different uh, different occupation, a different job uh, for the largest part of the year, but who too took up their instruments whenever there was need for musicians. In other words, for them, music was not their sole occupation, but it was one of the things that they did. They were absolutely essential for separate traditional music and separate society at the time because through their music a number of rituals uh, relating to weddings and religious festivals and so on were enacted. Were they a professional class? Yes in the sense that 
this was a group of musicians that was recognized for what they did and who were paid for their services when they went to play at a wedding or a festival. Were they a professional class in the sense that they were, let's say, that, that, that they belonged to a union or something like that? No, not, not in that sense. Uh, but they were a professional class in the sense that, yes, this was a group of people that had a very specific skill that the society around them recognized and which was essential in order to, um, to, to, to play at a number of occasions and performance settings. Why do I talk about men? I mean, this is a, a question that often often comes up when I talk about the fiddlers because I say uh, fiddlers were men of limited financial means and so on. It's true that this class of musicians was dominated by men because as many things at the time, so the book actually talks about the first half of the 20th century. It starts at the late 19th century and it, and it goes up until the early 1960s. So at that time, there was a, a very clear distinction between the public and the private sphere in Cyprus. And whereas, for instance, women could play music or sing or um, improvise uh, poetry at home or in front of their family and, and close friends, they generally could not perform music or sing in public. At that time, women who performed music in public or sang were generally seen by society as immoral. So it was something that was definitely frowned upon. And, and so, of course, women were discouraged from playing music or singing in public. If you don't mind I, um, me jumping in here, I think I, I remember you mentioned that uh, they were referred to as androgenekes. Not exactly, no. What happened was that the, the women who, who played music were not referred to as androgenekes, but what happened was that there were some exceptions to this rule. And this okay. was one of the rules. So some women were allowed to play music in public, but they had to somehow quote-unquote, deviate from the perceived female stereotype of the time. So, for instance, women who had um, a disability, uh, let's say they were blind, were allowed, again, quote-unquote, by society to play music because they also had to make a living. So it was, you know, okay, it was socially acceptable for them to play music in public. Other women who did play music or sing in public were those that other people often called androgenetes, so manly women. Uh, this was not a term that women would use for themselves. This was a, a derogatory term that was used by others to describe them. Mm -hmm. And so this basically referred to women whose behavior or sometimes their physique differed from, again, the perceived female stereotype of the time. So these were women who, for instance, perhaps liked to to talk a little bit differently or, or sometimes dress a little bit differently or have um, some, perhaps they had made some social uh, or life choices that were slightly different uh, from other women uh, of the time. And so these were, again, I'm using a lot of um, <laughs> quotation marks here, but right. quote unquote, forgiven by society for playing music or were allowed to play music. But for the average woman of the time, playing music in public or singing in public was completely unacceptable. And this is why this professional class was essentially dominated by men, uh, because it was a very public profession. So only a, a handful of women 
existed who played music and these were actually in my own field work I was only I only ever came across one such woman a fiddler from Limassol who was blind mm-hmm. and so she had to make a living so um, it was considered okay for her to be playing you know I, I watched the video that you uploaded on the um, Kari website and uh, and one of the interviewees was uh, Nico Haralambus's story of his father asking him if he would like to learn a craft. So how were fiddlers trained and, and, and when would they start to play? So many, many children at the time, and again, particularly boys, uh, would go to primary school, but then uh, they had to uh, choose uh, to either go to the gymnasio, if of course they also had the financial ability to go to the gymnasio, to secondary school, because at the time uh, they had to pay in order to go to secondary school, or they had to choose a techni, they had to choose a craft. Um, and uh, occasionally one of the crafts that showed up when you know they were going through this imaginary list, let's say with their parents about what they were going to do in life, also included uh, playing the violin, learning to be a fiddler. Uh, and it's interesting indeed how um, Nikos Karalambos um, spoke about this in the video because he does say that his his father asked him, you know, what do you want to what do you want to be, son? He said and said, do you want to be a cobbler? Do you want to be a builder? Do you want to be um, a, a carpenter? And then he said, do you want to learn to play the violin? So you know, this was one of the crafts that was um, in a way suggested to him. So yes, as I said, uh, many children would would finish primary school and then they had to make a choice of what craft to learn. And then there was the there was an apprenticeship method uh, or system for um, violin um, in the same way that you know there were apprenticeship systems in place uh, for any other craft that people wanted to learn at the time. So if someone wanted to become a, a cobbler or a carpenter or a or a barber or whatever, they would they would go to a master, to a mastros, um, a carpenter or, or, or fiddler or barber or whatever, and then they would they would learn next to the master. Uh, so they would become the apprentices, they would stay there for um, a number of years, and then they would um, uh, they would uh, quote unquote graduate when they were ready to to be professionals themselves. Uh, so the same thing happened with violin sometimes so um, these boys would go at the age of nine or ten or twelve to study the violin next to next to a master fiddler and sometimes they would stay with the fiddler sometimes they would travel to to go to the fiddler and and go back to their villages occasionally they would rent a room close to where the the master uh, was and they would stay there for a while and learn but again if I can go back for a minute to your previous questions about who the fiddlers were, let's just remember for a minute that being a fiddler did not mean that this was the only job that you did. This usually meant that this was one of the jobs that you did because most people could not support themselves themselves financially simply by being fiddlers for the very simple reason that weddings did not happen um, throughout the year. Uh, uh, festivals, religious festivals, Panairka did not happen throughout the year. So these things happened at specific times within the year. And so even if 
they did have opportunities to play, they could not support themselves only by playing the violin. So what they usually did was that they learned another craft as well, uh, alongside the violin. Very often, as with Nikos Karalambos that you mentioned, they learned the other craft that their the master, uh, the, the violinist, the other fiddler knew. So for instance, in the case of Nikos Karalambos, his master, his master was uh, was also a barber. So uh, when Nikos Karalambos went there, he learned both. Uh, he learned to play the violin and he also became a barber as a result of being an apprentice next to that particular man. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, yes, you had all of these things together. Now, you also asked me how they were trained. So, uh, again, there were different apprenticeship methods. So some of the fiddlers I spoke to for the book uh, said that they only learned music by ear. Uh, others also learned to read notation. But learning to read notation meant that, A, you had to go to a master who was more expensive, um, because normally those fiddlers who could read and write music were urban musicians living in the city, and they charged more, and it also, you know, it would cost you more to stay in one of the the larger cities in order to learn. And it also took longer because, of course, you also had to learn to, to read notation and not only you know how to play uh, the instrument. So uh, most of the, um, the the sort of the elderly fiddlers I spoke to said that they learned by ear uh, because this was quicker and cheaper for them. But it's that notation does come up as an advantage because once they did learn to read notation, they could keep learning even after they graduated because they could you know they they, they could buy a piece of music and and read it and learn it. When would um, I don't know if, you, if this this came up in in your in your research, but when would schooling become standardized? Where you would go to you know a, a music school, for example, would that be something that would happen post seventy four, or did did schools exist before that pivotal change? No, they did they did exist before, but what happened was that again um, these were more expensive. And they also tended to um, teach Western classical music rather than traditional music. So, in fact, a number of the fiddlers that feature in the book did go to these music schools or to teachers who who taught in the Western um, Western style, sort of Western uh, classical music. Uh, but um, if they wanted to support themselves by playing at weddings and festivals, then learning to play Western classical music uh, was not enough for them uh, and so sometimes they would go to a teacher and they would learn to play the violin they would learn you know the, the technique but then they would move on and and go to a traditional fiddler to learn uh, the traditional repertoire uh, so occasionally you see this this cases of musicians where they they did both you know they would they, they went to music school or they went to um, a teacher who knew how to who, to play um, Western classical music. They they studied a little bit with them, but then they moved on to learn the traditional stuff. Um, but it's true that um, going to a music school and and learning to play the, the violin, you know, using notation, uh, either in a music school or at a private um, with a private teacher, was an urban phenomenon. So this was not something that existed in villages. And musicians from villages who wanted to learn in this way had to come to Nicosia. Again, there are a couple of cases in the book uh, 
um, I think there are two musicians uh, in the book who had come to Nicosia, they left their villages, they came to Nicosia to learn with uh, Jan Nudi, which was the, um, the, the most famous teacher at the time, violin teacher at the time. But, um, you know, people would say that it, it cost a lot of money and this was, you know, it was an investment on the part of the family. How many um, how many apprentices could a uh, a master take on at any given point? Um, again, this had to do with whether we're talking about uh, masters in villages who also had different jobs, or whether we're talking about professional musicians who lived in the city and actually lived on their music. You know, they they, they lived um, on their teaching and and on their performance. So. Uh, a master in a village who also had a different job uh, normally wouldn't take more than, I would say, two or three apprentices. Uh, but um, urban musicians such as Yan Nudi, the, the teacher I mentioned earlier, or there's, there was also these, well, there's an Armenian teacher called Vahan Betelian, uh, who taught at a music school in Nicosia because they were professional musicians. They could have many students, you know, many different students at the time, because this was their their main job. And and when you apprenticed with um, with a master, obviously you're learning uh, certain songs, ones that would be performed at, at weddings and and festivals. I vaguely recall that eventually you'd have to learn different types of music. I think in the video. Uh, I don't know if it was Nico Haralambus, but he mentioned, you know, Bexigan and a foxtrot or something along those lines. How how did that change? Like, or when did that change? And and what basic types of music were you expected to learn, say, in, you know, the, the early 20th century versus uh, the latter half of the 20th century? How did that uh, change over time? The, the, the repertoire had two, let's say, very broad categories. So it could be divided into two very broad categories. One was the Kipriaka, so the separate repertoire. And the other was the Evropaika, the European repertoire. Now, the Kipriaka referred to any type of instrumental or um, instrumental piece of music or any songs and dances that uh, were considered local. So things such as the Sirtos or the Carchilamas or the Zeybekiko were part of the Kipriaka repertoire. And the Evropaika um, actually did not only refer to European music, but to any type of music that uh, was not local. Yeah. So for instance, it could refer to indeed European songs or, or types of, of dances, but it could also refer to Latin American dances, for instance, such as the tango. So the tango was part of the Evropaica repertoire. So the Evropaica included things such as the, the rumba, the samba, the fox, they called it fox rather than foxtrot, and again the tango um, in older times also the polka. Uh, so any dances that did not come from this part of the world was were considered Evropaica. So uh, in order for a fiddle to be considered um, so someone who was ready to play at a wedding or a festival, they had to know both types of repertoire. And uh, we know from uh, both from my own interviews, but also from written sources, that this was the case um, at least since the 1930s, perhaps even before. But certainly by the 1930s, this was this was the case. Um, the, the older musician, the, the, the oldest rather musician I spoke to, and he's part of the book, was born in 1913. So uh, he was already active 
by the 1930s. And, um, you know, um, so they all mentioned that these European, so-called European dances were very popular at the time. And some of them actually claimed that these dances were more popular than Cypriot dances at weddings um, at the time. Uh, but again, the two repertoires coexisted. And usually what happened was that uh, fiddlers would start by playing the Kipriaka and then they would play the Evropaika. Um, and this was a this was very common. And just to open a slightly bigger window here um, for a moment, it's important to note that this is not a separate phenomenon. I mean, this, this happens in several different Greek islands, for instance, where the Evropaika repertoire right. also includes the same sort of dances because these dances were, were popular uh, all around the world at the time. And of mm -hmm. course, they also reached uh, our part of the world. Are the experiences of the fiddler different in the uh, for the different communities? Uh, did they cross boundaries, for example? Uh, did Greeks perform uh, for Turkish weddings? Uh, did Turkish uh, players perform at Greek weddings? Yeah, well, thanks for asking me this, because in fact, it's important to note that um, the book and the documentary also includes uh, Turkish separate musicians. There are a couple of uh, separate uh, Turkish separate fiddlers in the book. Uh, uh, there's also a couple of, um, there are two musicians who play the Zurna and Daul uh, that feature uh, in the book. And the reason that they're there, even though the book is called The Cypriot Fiddler, is because um, at the time, so in the mid 20th century, uh, the Cypriot soundscape included both the violin and the lauto and the Zurna and Daul uh, in Turkish Cypriot weddings and, and celebrations. Uh, so for me, it was important to, in a way, have a complete picture of, you know, again, the soundscape of the time. So if we could imagine for a moment being back uh, in Cyprus in the 1950s, you know, you 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 were back in the 50s and you, you wandered in a village in Cyprus, you know, what would you hear at a wedding? And so, of course, these were the instruments uh, that were there at the time. So I wanted this this dialogue to also exist in the book and, and in the documentary as well. Now, did uh, Greek Cypriots play at Turkish Cypriot um, weddings and vice versa? Um, this really depended on uh, the, the region of Cyprus one is talking about. Um, because again, music was not cut off from the rest of society, right? So. In, in areas of Cyprus where you had uh, collaboration between the different communities in all areas of life, there was also collaboration and exchanges um, where music was concerned as well. So, for instance, in, again, if, if people worked together and lived together and, and celebrated together, then there was no reason for music to be an exception to that rule. And in the same way, in communities where you know you had, let's say, Greek, like um, just Greek separate villages or Turkish separate villages, perhaps this didn't happen as much. But again, this was simply a reflection of what was happening in those small um, regional societies in all other areas of life as well, right? So, for instance, in areas of Paphos, let's say, in villages of Paphos, where you, we know that the population was very mixed, it was very common to have a musician from the other community to play, well, to let's say Greek Cypriot playing at a Turkish Cypriot wedding or vice versa. And there, there are several references to that in the book. Uh, the criterion there was not, you know, uh, ethnic origin or religion or anything like that. It was, you know, who was the best? So there's, there's, mm -hmm. there was a, there's a fiddler in the book that says, you know, 
it, a Greek Cypriot man uh, told me this, and it's in the book. He said, "Oh, you know, if you if you had the money to to pay, then you would invite Arif." So he mentioned a Turkish Cypriot man. And I said, "You know, if you didn't have the money to pay Arif, then you would invite." I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name, but let's say Vasili. So he mentioned a Greek Cypriot name. So for him, it was a matter, you know, of quality and having the money to pay the best musician. And that was it. I mean, the question of, you know, well, he's a Turkish Cypriot or, you know, he's a Greek Cypriot. It didn't, it, it didn't even come into the discussion. You know, it was simply, you know, who can you pay? Can you pay to have the best? Then have the best. If you cannot, then go for number two. That was it. The, the experiences of, of the Turkish Cypriot players... Um, whether they were playing the the zurna uh, or any other instruments, it's, it pretty much parallels the experiences of, of Greek Cypriot learning to play the the laud or the violin as well, right? This would be the similar type of apprenticeship that would happen. They would still have to learn uh, another craft. Pretty much the same between the two communities. Yes, the the experience was was more or less the same. Things began to change after the early. 1960s and the first intercommunal uh, clashes, because then you have again necessarily the first, if you like, divisions between society. The first very serious divisions between separate society, and then all types of experiences change. Therefore, music and music making also changes. I, I really found it interesting that a lot of the people that you've interviewed, they say they don't say as I would expect to hear them say. Like I, I played at the at the wedding, it, they they say things like right? Like I made it, you know, like I made the wedding. Like I, it was because of me that it was possible. Um, I think that's very revealing to their significance. But I mean, as you just sort of alluded to right now, there was a, a, a decline in the '60s and '70s for a variety of reasons, including intercommunal strife, uh, 1974 modernization, radio, what have you, what would you say were the con contributing sort of factors that would lead to this decline in their in their role in, in Cypriot society? Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, the fact that society changed meant that music also changed, because again, we, we always need to remember that music is not cut off from the rest of, of society. It's not cut off from, obviously, from the people who make it. So if society changes, if people change, um, if there are very significant social or historical or political changes, then necessarily music changes with them. So, of course, once, um, you know, there were the, the intercommunal clashes and then there was the war and then people had to had to move, you know, became um, uh, refugees that were displaced from their communities and so on. Uh, music changed because, again, everything changed so music, oh, it, it was only natural for music to, to change as well. Now, the other contributing factors were, um, so once weddings stopped being the huge events that they were at, at villages, uh, you know, where they involved a whole village community over a number of, of days, once they became something small that lasted a few hours and only involved, let's say, two families and their friends, then the role of the fiddlers also changed. There was also perhaps this hunger for something new, something different, something less traditional, something less quote-unquote folklore at the time. These were some of the terms used. Uh, there were new types of music uh, around. And so there were the orchestras uh, that were 
playing laika using a buzuki um, in the Greek separate community. And very often these were uh, preferred because these were uh, sort of the, this was a fashionable type of music at the time. And later, of course, even these orchestras were abandoned in favor of DJs and again, different types of music. Uh, so once uh, they, um, once their role, their, their, once their role as enablers of rituals was diminished, their 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 role in general also changed. I mean, there there was no need for them. You know, there, there was no need for them to be playing at a wedding over a number of days because again, society had changed, musical tastes um, changed, and so uh, people did not feel the need to to engage a fiddler for a number of days anymore. Of course. Education and music education also changed because education, uh, as a, education became um, compulsory for for everyone. So children would go to school; they wouldn't stop at primary school to learn a craft. And those children who wanted to learn music began going to music schools. Uh, they began learning music uh, using notation and usually following a Western style of of, of music learning. And so this the apprenticeship method was also abandoned uh, necessarily because again the society also also changed around it. Yeah, I can definitely speak to to witnessing some of those changes, having gone back to Cyprus uh, many times in my life, uh, visiting family. I've participated in weddings where it, they they were very very traditional, quote unquote traditional. Uh, in the early 2000s, and then I think, uh, even rather, I should say, even as late as the early 2000s, um, and then most recently, I, I, maybe 10 years ago, there wasn't a, a violari anywhere. It was in a uh, a hotel, and there was uh, a mm-hmm. DJ, right? And there was there was none mm-hmm. of that music that was that was played. So I can, I'm sure I'm not the only one who could attest to, to experiencing that change as well. Mm-hmm. I think the work that you're doing is fantastic and it is and so important to talk about and to share it to listeners. Everything that you've said here is really eye-opening and I really hope that listeners do get a chance to to check out some of the some of your publications, some of the the work that you've done, the book that you've recently published, this the Cypriot Fiddler, because this is, you know, another part of the the Cypriot experience and that I think a lot of people, if, if not even if you're just not even if you're interested in, in music, but interested in just culture, that is an important part to to share. And you taking the time and talking about all of this, uh, I can't express my appreciation enough for for all the work that you've done and taking the time to share it with me. Not at all, Andrea. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for the the invitation and and the opportunity to talk about all of these things. And just to say for listeners uh, who might be interested in perhaps watching some of the videos of The Cypriot Fiddler, there's actually a dedicated website. It's thecypriotfiddler.com. The documentary will be uploaded there. It will be freely available. Um, It's uh, it's, it's subtitled in English, so people who don't understand um, Cypriot Greek can also follow. Uh, And so, as I said, it's, it's going to be freely available. There's also a lot of material about the fiddlers, there a lot of photographs you know some questions and answers about you know who the fiddlers were and why they played music the way they did and so on so yeah all of that will be up there in a few weeks time the cypriotfiddler.com one one last thing um what are you working on now that you could share with listeners 
Right. So right now I'm actually um, completing an, a new book on on chatista, the, the chatista. Um, so again, improvised uh, rhyming couplets of uh, sort of antagonistic nature. So this poet of dueling as they were performed in the Festival of Cataclysmos in Larnaca. Uh, this is a bilingual book, actually. So it's, it's um, so half of it is in Greek, half of it is in English. I mean, the same material is published in both languages. And I'm also completing a new documentary on the new generation of Chatista singers that will also be released, uh, I think in a few months time and will also be freely available. So um, again, these two Chatista projects, and um, I've also recently set up an, an organization called Cypress Music Archive. So uh, this is a, a not-for-profit company that tries to uh, make some private, well, one of the goals, I mean, we have several goals, but one of the goals or our main goals at, the, at, at this point in time is that we are trying to bring together some um, private recordings of Cypriot music and also interviews relating to Cypriot traditional music and create uh, an online library where people can simply, you know, um, can go online and listen to them, check them out. Uh, so this is something that's going to be open to everyone um, in order to, um, again, preserve all of these um, private archives um, that people have at home and they're just, you know, they're doing nothing. Um, so we want to um, slowly digitize them, put them online and make them available to people to, to listen to and enjoy. Uh, again, Nicoletta, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I will certainly be in touch. Thank you for having me, Andrea. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.